folks. Welcome to the What Are Poems podcast, the only poetry podcast not seeped in pretension. And I'll tell you what, this was a big lesson in the uh, dichotomy of the United States this week. Uh, presidential election goes on for 140 days. Uh, the racist in chief, Donnell Trump, finally defeated. Uh, seems like civility is on its way back. People are dancing in the streets to the uh, song Dancing in the Streets. And then they say, you know what? We gave you that. We gave you that that uh, peace. We gave you that moment of okay, okayness. And we're going to have to kill Alex Trebek now. The Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away, as they say. Here's my statement on the great Alex Trebek, founding father of all things good in game show land. In this time of constant uncertainty we've all been forced to live in, it is nice to have a reminder that one thing always brought people together. People talk about baseball being the great American pastime. I'd argue it is Jeopardy. It unites families and friends. More people probably watch James's epic run than the World Series. Alex Trebek was a stalwart steward of intellectualism. The contestants over the years were often strange and by a societal standard a bit different. It was their knowledge and Trebek's championing of that knowledge that made some of them celebrities. He is the voice of calm. He is the constant and ever-changing world. He's part of our great American connectiveness. And his death is a reminder to learn from one another, to be good to one another, to forever understand that human beings can evolve from the small trivial things we pick up along the way. Rest easy, you prince of game shows. You king of humanity. <laughs> now, I just got done watching the 2020 special on, uh, on his life and times, and it was... Uh, just as devastating as you could imagine. Good men perish in America, though. That's part of the uh, that's part of the ride. Today's poet is William Carlos Williams. Uh, Carl William Carlos Williams was born the first of two sons of an English father and a Puerto Rican mother of French, Dutch, Spanish, and Jewish ancestry. And he grew up in Rutherford, New Jersey. Rutherford, New Jersey, of course, famous. For its 48.1% violent crime rate. He was a medical doctor, poet, novelist, essayist, and playwright. With Ezra Pound, known fascist, and Hilda Doolittle. Williams was a leading poet of the Imagist movement. And often wrote of American subjects and themes. Though his career was initially overshadowed by other poets. He became an inspiration to the Beat Generation in the 1960s. He was known as an experimenter, an innovator, a revolutionary figure in American poetry, yet in comparison to artists of his own time who sought a new environment for creativity as expatriates in Europe, Williams lived a remarkably unconventional life. No, conventional life, sorry. A doctor for more than 40 years serving the citizens of Rutherford with its 48.1% violent crime rate, he relied on his patience, the America around him, and his own awesome imagination to create a distinctly American verse often domestic in focus, and remarkable for its empathy, sympathy, its muscular and emotional identification with its subjects, Williams' poetry is also characteristically honest. There is no optimistic blindness in Williams, wrote Randall Jarrett, though there is a fresh gaiety, 
a stubborn or invincible joyousness. William's family provided him with a fertile background in art and literature. His father's mother, coincidentally named Emily Dickinson, was a lover of theater, and his own mother painted. William's father introduced his favorite author, Shakespeare, to his sons, and read Dante and the Bible to them as well. But Williams had other interests in study. His enthusiastic pursuit of math and science at New York City's Horace Mann High School showed how little writing entered into any of his calculations. Later in high school, though, Williams took an interest in languages and felt for the first time the excitement of great books. He recalled his first poem, also written during that time, giving him a feeling of joy. <laughs> Williams himself wrote that terror dominated my youth, not fear. Part of this terror, speculated James Breslin, came from the rigid idealism and moral perfectionism his parents tried to instill in him. Williams' letters written while a student at the University of Pennsylvania to his mother exemplify some of, these, some of the expectations he carried. I never did and never will do a premeditated bad deed in my life, he wrote in 1904. Also, I have never had and never will have anything but the purest and highest and best thoughts about you and Papa. It was largely parental influence that sent him directly from high school to Pennsylvania in the first place to study medicine. But as Breslin noted, Williams used his college experiences as a means of creativity instead, as his parents might have wished, as a means to success. So Williams, Carlos Williams, just walking through life, uh, scared out of his mind, so afraid he's going to fuck up and disappoint his parents. I picture this little guy just walking the streets of Philadelphia, looking over his shoulders, afraid he's going to hurt someone or do something wrong. I remember when I lived in uh, Philadelphia, it was about six or seven blocks from the 7-Eleven. And this guy I called Techno Chad used to sit outside this place where they sold used Christmas trees. And he would dance to heavy 80s techno, but his hands were like frozen solid. And he had no teeth, so I'd give him a few bucks or I'd buy him hot ramen soup so he could just gum his meal. Probably dead. But you know, uh, William Carlos Williams would have been terrified of that guy probably. He used to pump his fist in the air and yell, good night, good, good luck. I don't think he knew he was quoting Edward R. Murrow, but maybe he did. Williams' friendship with Pound marked a watershed in the young poet's life. He later insisted before meeting Pound is like B.C. and A.D. Under Pound's influence and other stimuli, reported John Malcolm Brennan, Williams was soon ready to close the door on the studied elegance of Keats on one hand and the raw vigor of Whitman on the other. Aside from the poetic influences, Pound introduced Williams to a group of friends, including poet Hilda Doolittle, H.D., and painter Charles DeMuth, who shared the kinds of feelings that in Rutherford had made him frightened and isolated. H.D., for example, with, his, with her arty dress and her peculiarity, sometimes she'd splash ink onto her clothes to give her a feeling of freedom and indifference towards the mere means of writing, fascinated Williams with a provocative indifference to rule and order, which he liked. This Eliza Doolittle has come up before. She uh, reminds me of this scene girl that keeps capturing everyone's hearts, like in the early 2000s. Uh, she's listening to Belle and Sebastian, and her bangs are just at the right angle. I'm pretty sure that Eliza Doolittle is the manic pixie dream girl of the Imagist poetry movement. And what's the muth like? I bet he's just farty. Because when you have a group of artists, you always have that farty one. And no one will ever document Charles the Muth, painter, as having a hold on a great fart. My friend Joe told me... Uh, he won't eat at Garrity's salad bar anymore because they got rid of the garlic. And he said the garlic made him fart all night when he was sleeping. Well, he was awake. The way he described those midnight garlic farting fits was uh, was pretty poetic. So that's out there, folks. Poetry is out there. 
So William's whole thing is he wants poetry to mirror the speech of the American people. Uh, he has no interest in uh, the speech of the English country people, which has something artificial about it. Instead, he sought a language modified by our environment, the American environment. One reservation Williams may have had about middle-class America, and Rutherford in particular, was its reception of him as a poet. Few and Rutherford had any awareness of who Williams the poet was, and beyond Rutherford, his reputation fared no better. Even after he had been writing for nearly 30 years, he was still virtually an unknown literary figure. Eventually, Williams begins work on this hulking, beautiful anti-epic called Patterson, a giant epic poem describing Patterson, New Jersey, and it's just fantastic. But that was also uh, not critically acclaimed. Patterson did help bring Williams some of the attention he had been missing for many years. One honor came in 1949 when he was invited to become the consultant of the Library of Congress. Uh, Williams first refused the appointment because of the poor health, but decided in 1952 that he was ready to assume the post. Unfortunately for Williams, the editor and publisher of the poetry magazine Lyric got word of Williams' appointment and subsequently announced Williams' communist affiliations. There's one in every crowd, right? While Williams may have felt abandoned when few came to his defense during the Library of Congress incident, little could have been bolstered him the way the cult of the third-generation poets did when they adopted him as their father in poetry. Patterson is our leaves of grass, announced Robert Lowell. The times have changed, and indeed they have. The dominant school of poetry, the academic school of Eliot and Alan Tate, was giving way to what Whitmore called the 50s revolutionary of the word. Such poets as Lowell, Allen Ginsberg, Charles Olson, and a slew of others uh, found Williams an alternate to the academics. Uh, it's actually Williams who tells Ginsberg that his work, Howl, needed cutting by half. So the beats start loving him, and his reputation is kind of growing amongst the normal folks, which he has initially borrowed from to make his poetry something on every man's endeavor, I'd say. Despite his failing health, Williams lived as productively as possible throughout his later years. He traveled, gave lectures, and entertained writers in the same home that had been visited by members of the Imagist movement more than 40 years earlier. Williams wrote two poetry, of course, as well as essays and short stories. So without further ado, here's Williams, Carlos Williams. So much depends upon a red wheelbarrow, glazed with rainwater beside the white chickens so much depends upon a red wheelbarrow glazed with rainwater beside the white chickens that's actually my favorite poem and remains my favorite poem throughout this poetry endeavor and here's one more from williams it's uh this is just to say i have eaten the plums that were in the icebox and which you were probably saving for breakfast. Forgive me, they were delicious, so sweet and so cold. Now he's got it. That's got it all for me. That's what I'm looking for. When we come back, a poem sent in by Aaron. And when I read it, and when I read it, it gave me a very uh, William Carlos Williams vibe. And so we'll bookend this forever explanation. Oh, God, I can't read today. Uh, or speak. Uh, so we will bookend this forever exploration into what makes poetry poetry and our souls our souls. <laughs> Here is to-do list. Hamper for bathroom. Rug. Toilet rug. 
tiny sink rug, bathroom trash, sponges, Clorox wipes, wine glasses. That's to-do list. And remember, you can submit your own poems to the podcast by emailing them to whatarepoemspodcast at gmail.com. Until next time, folks, peace and love, peace and love, Beef Jackie.